1: It's time for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thanks to all of you out there for listening to us uh, today. Well, we're down to the final days of the uh, 2023 legislative session. And so we're going to spend a bit of time on the show today talking about some of the bills that are still Uh, waiting to uh, be looked at either by the legislature or in one case, particularly a bill that is now sitting on Governor Kemp's desk, one of the more controversial bills of the session. Um, We'll do that with a great panel of journalists, starting with my Wednesday partner from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Greg Blustein. Greg, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you, Bill? I'm fine. I'm uh, I'm 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 glad that I am no longer like you sometimes, and certainly you, Stephen Fowler, G.P.B. News political reporter, also joining us today. I don't spend my days down at the Capitol anymore. I have moved after, beyond that after 19 sessions. So, so I'm feeling particularly good today. Hi, Stephen. Thank you for being here too. Always a pleasure, Bill. Margaret Coker is back with us. She's the editor-in-chief of The Current, which you can uh, read at thecurrentga.org. And we always mention that because The Current is, in fact, a nonprofit news organization that you can read online. Hi, Margaret.
2: Hi. Thanks for having me back. It's always a pleasure.
1: Um, We're going to later on in the show talk about a terrific story uh, that you partnered uh, uh, with uh, ProPublica on that is now getting picked up by members of the United States Senate. We'll get to that in a little while. And Chauncey Alcorn, reporter for Capital B, is also with us. Uh, Chauncey, uh, Capital B, is Capital B also a nonprofit news organization? I've never known.
3: Yes, we are. We are a nonprofit news organization, a little more than a year old now, that centers black voices in our coverage. Absolutely.
1: We're really glad uh, whenever you're able to be with us. All right, let's get right to it. Uh, Greg Bluestein, the Senate uh, finally passed, or was the final uh, uh, group necessary to pass the very controversial transgender bill, which limits how medical professionals can work with young people who want to uh, trans uh, to transition, um, and it's now in the hands of uh, the governor. Um, it's been a very emotional journey. And what's interesting about it, Greg, is I, I think, although the highest emotions probably belong to the families that have transgender children, uh, there have been some people who have backed this bill who say they've been found it very emotional to deal with as well.
0: Yeah, I was in the Senate yesterday, and the real show was actually happening right outside the halls, where a lot of these family members were watching on the TV screens, the emotional debate. Um, We heard about an hour of back and forth from lawmakers, including eight different Democrats who all spoke against this. And they said, look, one of them was Senator Josh McLaurin, who said, look, this this vote is already baked in. We already know what's going to happen, but we can't let this opportunity go by without expressing one more time the dangers that they feel like this this sort of legislation uh, will, will take, the tolls it will take on the mental health of transgender children. So this was very emotional, and now it's headed to the governor's desk.
1: Um, Stephen, uh, one of the most, I, I thought, most uh, interesting points about all this is that when, when the bill went to the House, and it started in the Senate, obviously, went to the House for approval, and while it was in the House, the— um, House wanted, I think I'm right, got this right, to remove a provision that would have blocked uh, any doctors from being criminally prosecuted uh, if they proceeded with any treatments for transgender young people. Uh, The Senate uh, wants that, put that back in the bill. Have I got that right? One way or another, I know now there is no block on possible criminal prosecution,
4: Right. So the uh, when the Senate originally passed this bill a few weeks ago, there was language in there that uh, did not hold medical providers criminally or civilly liable for any treatments that they might have given in violation of the law. The House committee stripped that out which meant that the bill would have to go back to the Senate, uh, in some ways kind of delaying the inevitable, but also in requiring it to go back to the Senate and then more debate and then ultimately the final vote. But now the language does not have those protections. It doesn't automatically mean that if a doctor gives uh, some of the health care that is no longer allowed, that they will be criminally or civilly liable. It just means that that option is there and the protection is not there some states that have passed similar legislation have kept that protection in other states have intentionally pursued legislation that would hold these medical professionals liable and so it's a mix of things also included in the bill is language dealing with uh, the liability on the end of like the medical board and punishments in that way that could include uh, go up to and including somebody losing their license and also issues with uh, facilities that may employ somebody that did this sort of care.
1: Margaret, uh, we know that these transgender bills have been uh, widespread across the country in Republican legislatures. Um, I I think it's fair to say that uh, the Republicans who have introduced and passed these measures see it as a big issue for the 2024 election cycle. And um, there are many people who believe this is more, certainly more, about politics than it is about Uh, an understanding of the medical implications of transgender individuals.
2: Yeah, that's right. I'm I'm not sure that um, there's many people who have taken the time, at least here in Georgia, to understand the underlying medical issues. You know, there was um, a, a group of medical practitioners in Georgia, over 100, who signed a letter saying that this this bill um, sort of negates a lot of best practices and a lot of the implicit privacy that comes between a physician and his and his patient or her patient, um, who in this case happened to be uh, uh, minors. It's really striking to me that as we are talking in a broader sense about ideological um, legislation that involves the patient-client confidentiality or the privacy of, of Um, patients, that we're also coming up against this contradiction between parents' rights and parents' bills of rights. The other kind of of talking point that we hear Georgia Republicans um, who who take great pride in trying to place parents center into the lives of their children and the decision making. This bill um, does the opposite. It says that parents, no matter what they want um, for their children or what their children want, um, don't have the right anymore to make those decisions um, with their doctors.
3: Yeah, I think that's that's one of the things that was most striking to me, too, is this as the uh, intention is supposed to be protecting children. That's the stated um, argument. But in in the case of trans youth in the state, um, you know, um, the proponents would argue that they're actually harming children in in the process and that, uh, you know, you're taking away the rights of uh, parents to manage their own um children's care um and you know and giving it to the state which is kind of a uh somewhat contra uh, contradictory position for republicans who tend to be against government intervention in these kind uh, in most situations so um it, it reminds me of the uh of the bill the divisive constants bill which had that provision last year regarding um trans student athletes and uh you know it seems to be kind of a solution looking for a problem that um doesn't seem to be uh, i don't think that the to the best of my knowledge republicans haven't presented that this is a, a wide sweeping situation in in georgia that there are uh you know lots of children seeking this care and uh certainly there have been trans youth uh in georgia and up across the country for um forever but uh only recently have we seen this come into controversy so it's interesting it'll the ACLU is uh has uh promised to sue uh, over this um i think it'll meet a lot of uh, scrutiny in the, uh, both the st- on state and federal constitutional grounds. It'll be interesting to see how it goes.
1: Uh, Greg, uh, you're welcome to uh, add anything you'd like to this conversation. But one of the things I'd like to ask you to uh, to talk about is um, for listeners out there who aren't aware what all of you on the panel are, is that the governor has 40 days after a legislative session ends to act on every bill that uh, is presented to him in this case. Um, so is there any reason, number one, to think that Governor Kemp will not sign this bill? I assume the answer is no, but you'll tell me if there are some complications here. And and also, what's your speculation, and that's all it is, as to how, what kind of show he makes of si- signing it, how quietly he signs it, when in the 40-day period. How do you imagine the governor and his people handling something as controversial as this?
0: Look, there could be some legal complications. We've already heard. I've heard privately f- from some lawyers. We've heard publicly from uh, civil rights groups that they plan to sue uh, and to block this legislation. But look, I would be shocked if the, the governor camp Kemp doesn't sign this bill. Uh, I reported an analysis yesterday about his approach to this term which is involving a lot of behind the scenes action and not nearly as much direct action involving legislation but yet he's still helping to shape all this so he's he's been very involved behind the scenes in the uh, the, the the passage of this bill and uh, one state lawmaker who's very closely allied with him said on the record before walking it back that governor kemp plans to sign it so again we'll i'll be shocked if he doesn't sign this measure um, and it does dovetail into what he did last year when he signed a similar measure that paved the way to block transgender girls from competing in women's high school sports. But it's, as, in terms of what kind of show he makes or how big of a deal he makes this, this is seen as the, the big conservative win this session. In the absence of legislation involving abortion or guns or so far religious liberty or Buckhead secession or you name it, a lot of the culture war issues that we've talked about on the show over the last few years – a lot of those have gone by the wayside so far in the session. This is it. This is the big conservative win. So I wouldn't be surprised either if, if if the governor made a big deal about signing this bill.
1: Yeah, we should uh mention uh by the way, uh Margaret, that <clears throat> excuse me, during a congressional recess, Marjorie Taylor Green came down to the Capitol and pushed hard for passage of this uh bill in the long run, I believe in the long run, and either you Margaret or you Stephen, can tell me, uh, she um, felt it wasn't quite strong enough.
2: Yeah, I'm not sure where Marjorie Taylor Greene's uh, um, barometer is for strong, stronger, strongest. However, it's I find um, the most interesting part of this, um, of this ballet is as the governor's continued um, continued tightrope walk between two factions of of his state party. You know, we have the mm-hmm. state party uh, um, convention coming up in June. There's going to be a, a new chairman of the state party elected. Which faction is going to be in ascendancy? How all of these smaller um, tactics about about what legislation to prioritize um, this term and and how all of this is going to play out into Governor Kemp's own personal political strategies and career goals. You know, this is is the tightrope. And I think that, um, as Greg mentioned, if there's a big signing ceremony that um, Governor Kemp can tout his conservative credentials once again in a lead up to another huge election year, I think he will end up still on, you know, the top dog on on that pile, Marjorie Taylor Greene be damned.
1: Uh, Stephen, uh, talk about Marjorie Taylor Greene in this bill.
4: Well, I think, you know, first it's important to mention that I think one of the reasons that we're having this conversation now and that we are having this conversation and the Republicans are having success with this is that there are Are not that many people that this bill affects from the sense of even uh, opponents of this bill say that, like, surgeries are not really happening in Georgia. This is not a widespread thing. But also, on the flip side, Republicans don't have to suffer the backlash of that many people. Uh, or or having to suffer point out that they are doing something that affects a great number of people. And that's a very cynical way of viewing things, but that has to factor into the calculus. You know, it would be different if this was affecting, you know, it it would be different if this was affecting a larger group of people or maybe a less or, or maybe a more protected group of people than youth who also are transgender and their families. And so there's a very cynical play in this of, you know, there's not that great of a backlash. It's not like, unfortunately, you know, it's not like there's going to be a huge backlash beyond this immediate, uh, the the people it affects and also Democrats who Republicans don't care if they offend or have backlash from anyways. And that's kind of the Marjorie Taylor Greene angle to this, too. You know, Marjorie Taylor Greene has thrived by being a very vocal champion of harder right legislation and harder right issues, especially in the cultural realm. And so this is right up the alley of speaking to the most uh, fringe, most hardcore set in their ways view of the Republican Party base. And that's who this legislation is for. It's not for the average everyday Georgian, the hardworking Georgian that Brian Kemp mentions. It's for the hardcore conservative base to say, look, this is something that we are doing and we're fighting back against you know whatever it is on the left.
1: Chauncey, one final note um, on this, if, if I could ask you about this. It, Greg Bluestein, I think everybody agrees that Governor Kemp is going to sign this into law. So uh, families are going to have to deal with it, despite what they may be having to cope with at home with their children who believe that they are not the gender that uh, they were uh, uh, assigned to it at birth. Um, but this strikes me, we, it took this country a very long time to accept and understand um, gay relationships, and beyond that, gay marriage, um, and 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 for quite some time, it was a foreign concept to a lot of people. And we know that really, in the in the aftermath of the Supreme Court ruling, it became a a, a fairly well accepted part of life. People accept now gay marriage, I think, in a way that they didn't decades ago, and it strikes me that transgendered people are a new frontier that um maybe we're living in different times and maybe you know right wing uh, uh political uh leaders are going to continue to hammer away at this uh to please their base but it strikes me there are ways in which the transgender community is still got a way has got has not found the acceptance that at certain point uh gay marriage did in other words It takes us a while to understand these concepts.
3: Yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned um, the uh, uh, um, gay marriage and how the Supreme Court legalized that um, and how that uh, in the aftermath of that, we kind of uh, it's not a controversial issue. I'm, I'm old enough to remember when uh, Barack Obama, um, a Democrat, was president, uh, initially was not in favor uh, of gay marriage. And you know, looking back at that now, so a lot of people would 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 be surprised to know that. Um, and uh, in this situation here, you do have uh, even on amongst Democrats, particularly uh, I would say in the Black community, um, where there's a lot of division over this topic. It's certainly not uh, you know as cut and dry as uh, gay marriages today. Or, you know interracial marriage was a generation ago uh uh were around loving virginia mm. and things of that nature so um it's it's a culture war fight that you know the, the republicans are very good at fighting they know how to find wedge issues that kind of divide people and um in ways that you know you might not see uh, on as it relates to um more principled policy on, you know, things related to the economy, things of that nature. But this is one that I think is a cultural divide that's going to be waged in the public eye for um, years to come um, until, um, you know, there's some kind of resolution on it. Maybe the Supreme Court weighs in or, you know, we see something a little bit more resolute.
1: All right. Thank you very much for that. Um, Greg, let's move on to an issue that you've reported on pretty extensively um, and that's this fight now, as we come down to the final days of the session, that uh, Lieutenant Governor Bert Jones is waging over eliminating the uh, need uh, certificates of need for hospitals in outlying areas of the state. If if you'd start, please, by explaining what is for our listeners a certificate of need.
0: Yeah, it's very wonky, and it's very important. It's very wonky, and. In, in past sessions, which hinged on huge debates over guns or abortion or, you know, healthcare guidelines involving the pandemic and others, this, this seems like a surprising battle that would bring both chambers to, you know, to, to the verge of uh, open feuding. Um, but it's happening right now. And, and, you know, even this morning, I got a number of phone calls from top officials about with the latest in this back and forth, but certificate of need. Is basically a state requirement. State regulators have to have to evaluate and determine whether or not a new hospital can be built. Um, and they're worried about controlling medical spending, they're worried about hiring wars between dual hospitals. They're worried about, you know, a private hospital opening next to a public one and offering um, you know, boutique services and putting the, the public hospital out of businesses. There's a lot of reasons for these laws that have been in place since the 70s. Um, but there's also concerns that these certificate of needs take years. If not, you know, even more than a decade in some cases, uh, to 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 secure and all sorts of legal fees. And so some uh, some counties, especially smaller counties in rural areas, uh, want the ability to build their own hospitals without having to go through this process and spending all these legal fees. Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones is the chief supporter of this measure. Um he is backing Senate bill ninety nine, which allows hospitals to be built without these certificates of need in counties fewer than 50,000 people. He says it would bring more quality access healthcare. Um, house leaders have balked at it. The governor's office is behind the scenes working to derail this legislation. And one of the things that can't be separated from this entire debate is that the lieutenant governor's family would stand to personally financially benefit from this because they have an entire, uh, they, they have assembled 250 acres of land, his father's company for about $30 million on which, this, uh, w- which a hospital in his native Butts County could be built, that Wellstar, one of the biggest healthcare companies in the state, is opposing. So there's a lot to this, but right now there is um, real tense times between the House and the Senate. We're already seeing that playing out on multiple fronts at the Capitol.
1: Uh, Stephen, uh, Burt Jones is not happy about the fact that the news media has reported his family uh, stands to uh, uh, make some money if uh, the certificate in need is eliminated and a hospital uh, uh, has to acquire uh, property uh, in the Jones family.
4: Yeah, I mean, you cannot separate the uh genesis of the bill which senate sponsors have said was the push for a private hospital in butts county on land that is owned most likely on land that is owned by Bert jones's father you can't separate the underlying facts surrounding that particular issue with the lieutenant governor's uh, excitement and insistence on certificate of need it would be different if they're like yeah all of these rural hospitals that have closed down in Randolph County and other places where, you know, there needs to be better services and things like that. We need to do this for all of Georgia. It's uh, it's, we want to get rid of this certificate of need thing for this hospital that the lieutenant governor's family stands to financially benefit. That doesn't sit right with people uh, on both sides of the aisle. And it, I think, undermines some of the important conversation that has been had for multiple years about certificate of need reform and about the access to care. And then you also add in the political layers of Wellstar and the Atlanta Medical Center being closed and, you know, the issues with Black Atlanta and with this heavily Democratic urban area. And there's a lot more politics involved than the typical politics steeped environment of the Capitol, where it's, it's, it's hard to be... There are many people that I've talked to that uh, find it hard to stand firmly in one camp or the other without having a little bit of uh, ick factor, so to speak, towards different elements of how this is coming about. Chauncey,
1: um, this, uh, this entire issue uh, threatens, at least the lieutenant governor has said, uh, he may not move forward on giving and, and, and allowing the Senate to, uh, to act on House measures if they don't resolve this thing.
3: Well, Stephen kind of uh, uh made the point that I was gonna make, which is that if the you know if the lieutenant governor wants to open a hospital uh to help people somewhere, I'm betting um there's some black folks in the old fourth ward and east point that have some ideas um where he can put it. Um there are plenty of places uh hospitals are needed that don't like directly threaten the livelihood of hospitals already established and in some cases uh are struggling to stay open. Um there was that 2021 Signet Health Feasibility Study that showed uh, that the uh, Sylvan Grove Hospital in Bus County needed uh, more than about 50 additional beds, I believe, um, but I'm not sure if that community uh, needs an entirely new hospital uh, to compete with. Um, and and with all the uh, parts of the state where you're where there are no hospitals or where we're seeing these huge gaps in healthcare coverage, um, I think that that's not necessarily going to resonate with a lot of people who are who are in those communities who need who say uh, we need hospitals where we live. Margaret.
2: So I've not, I've I've not covered a, a full session of the state legislature. So please, um, for the experts uh, in the panel, correct me if I'm wrong. But isn't this the same as it ever was in the sense that it is really uh, the party the The leaders of the party in power who really are um, really start to get um, policies moving and and bills turned into law. For example, you know former Speaker at Ralston, when he started championing mental health reform and mental health legislation, that's when that's when we saw um, real change start to happen in the state. It was there's a lot of rank and file people um, on that issue as well as on the issue of, of rural health and rural hospital access who who might actually benefit as the ball rolls downhill if Bert Jones gets his bill passed into law maybe this um, this ends a log jam and starts to bring more reform for others across the state yes or no
1: all right w- Greg Greg yeah, let me well, let me do it we're yeah go go ahead go ahead
0: Well, we'll see. Uh, We're still trying to evaluate the leadership styles of both Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones and John Burns, the new House Speaker. Um, David Ralston ruled with an iron fist. He could get things done. Um, Lieutenant Governor Jones is taking on a big fight. This has been going on in the Capitol for years, certificate of need battles, and they've gone nowhere. So this is a a pretty heavy lift uh, for his first few months in office, and he's going up against some institutional opposition from Governor Kemp's office again the governor hasn't come out and said publicly he's against it but behind the scenes <laughs> they're working against this bill so it's it's really gonna it's gonna be real tough for him to get this passed
1: I've got to get to a break but Greg um w- w- what you're talking about here and and this is what's so interesting about legislative sessions, Um, There are so many complications in some measures that we're not even looking at when a session begins that suddenly come to the surface. And in this case, the reason the governor's office is working to kill this measure, uh, uh, according to the reporting you've done, is that Wellstar opposes it because they are about to enter into an agreement with uh, the Medical College of Georgia in Augusta. And they're afraid that if this... Certificate of need bill passes and and you no longer need a certificate of need, they could face competition somewhere in the Augusta area with a hospital that would come along, right?
0: Well, yes, and Wellstar is worried more specifically about a 100-bed hospital that they operate in Griffin that would be threatened by this oh. new hospital in Butts County. So they they don't oh. want this new hospital to be built because they're worried about their own. But at the same time, they're involved in this potential takeover of Augusta University Health System, which is now operated by the Board of Regents, by, by the state government, essentially. And uh, the state really wants this deal to go through. They really want that deal to go through with Wellstar. And so there's so much bound up in all this Um, But you're right. This is what we call the March surprise. There's always a surprise issue at the Georgia legislature that could uh, throw a a wrinkle on things. And this is the measure that's doing that right now.
1: Uh, Thank you for clarifying uh, uh, what I said about uh, the measure, uh, Greg. I appreciate it. All right. Let's get to our first break of the show. A lot more to talk about after these messages.
0: Thanks for listening to Political Rewind.
1: quick programming note, Uh, we're doing a show tomorrow that I've been looking forward to for quite some time. Um, Eve Ensler, who is a Tony Award-winning playwright, the author of The Vagina Monologues, which back in 1996 was a revolutionary one-woman show that made people, women, uh, uh, who said that they felt that for the first time their bodies were being demystified. It talked about sexual assault. Uh, rape issues that uh, many people preferred to remain hidden. Uh, she has now changed her name to V, and she continues to fight for women, literally internationally, and she will be our guest on the show tomorrow. And and joining me for the conversation is, I think, the perfect kind of temporary co-host, Jen Jordan, former uh, state uh, senator. So I hope you'll join us uh, for that show. Um, okay, Chauncey Alcorn is here, Greg Blustein, Margaret Coker, and Stephen Fowler. Um, Stephen, uh, just a quick uh, uh, a couple of minutes on a measure we have not talked about on this show, but actually has um, created a good deal of controversy under the Gold Dome, and that's the bill that would raise, at least now temporarily, the weight limit for trucks traveling across Georgia. Why is that bill? Why has that bill been controversial? What are the implications of raising the weight limits?
4: Well, it's it's one of those things that if you look at it at first glance, you're like, why do I care? Uh, It seems like a wonky thing for the legislature to look at. But Mm -hmm. the battle lines that people have come down on in this bill are not necessarily in the ways you would typically expect. It's not like one party is in favor of it, one party is opposed. Uh, Some of the biggest, fiercest debate and really one of the most vetted measures in the legislature so far is this bill that uh, deals with truck weights and the maximum amount of weight these big trucks can carry on certain roads. And uh, the people that are for this bill say that Georgia has some of the lower truck weights. They need more truck weights so they could get more goods and services and things distributed across the state with fewer trucks and fewer drivers. The opponents of this bill, which include uh, traffic safety people, uh, local governments, and the Department of Transportation say doing so only puts more people's risk. Um, it's going to destroy Georgia's roads and bridges infrastructure faster, and there's no way to you know pay for that to keep up with things. Uh, I saw a graphic floating around, I think from, it was maybe from the Georgia Department of Transportation, showing how many roads would become inaccessible to these big trucks if the weight was raised higher and most of the state was a spider web of red blocked off which would then put bigger trucks with bigger weights on the bigger interstates creating more traffic and more backups. And then when there are accidents with these trucks, um, it's more deadly for people, but also it's harder to clean up the interstate when you've got this larger truck. I mean, you see seemingly there was once a month, there's some big truck that spilled something on some interstate ramp somewhere, things are closed for an hour, so on and so forth. So this is, this is one of the things that really is, uh, really the pinnacle of legislation in that there's a lot of vetting going on there's a lot of debate and it's something that affects a lot of people that they don't necessarily pay attention to, so it seems, maybe, for now, we have a halfway truce measure of sorts. Margaret.
2: Well, here in Savannah. It is more than a wonky issue, to be sure. Of course, um, because the the port is is growing, it is the lifeblood of the state's economy. It's one of our biggest um, employers here in coastal Georgia. In part, because not it's not just the people who are unloading containers on the ships. It's all the trucking companies and the affiliated logistical firms that that get all of those goods to where they're supposed to go. So there's a there's a real, I think, kind of identity crisis here in terms of, again, the Republican Party of Georgia. There is um, a great need to help um, build our economy, help to create jobs, but there's also this anathema about raising taxes. And at the brunt of the controversy, at least locally, it is how are we going to pay um, to repair our roads and our bridges? And in this bill right now, there is not a revenue formula at all, either to raise taxes or to try and recoup the costs to repair the roads. Um, um, at least here, uh, that's that's really kind of the driving agenda and the driving debate. How are we gonna pay for it all? If we are going to help um, build the economy, we need something else in return, i.e. revenue.
1: Yeah, Greg, um, in fact, uh, and that's where this measure uh, uh, brings into play Uh, concerns that go beyond just trucks on our roads. It's the need to improve infrastructure across the state. I I think that uh, there's been a study which shows that Georgia would have to raise something like $1.5 billion to uh, do the kind of uh, road and bridge improvement that would allow heavier trucks uh, to travel on the roads here, but but, but also would improve transportation for all
0: Georgians yeah, we've been calling this a lives and livelihoods debate because that's really what it boils down to the, the very core of it. Um, and in Margaret's right, we we have uh, there's a huge question about the revenue that would be required to repair roads that would be damaged by uh, this increase increased limit weight limit. And the latest version of the measure um, doesn't take effect until July of next year in hopes of giving lawmakers time to pave the way for a plan to raise billions of dollars for road and rail improvements. So they're they they, they are kind of f- trying to find a compromise over this really weighty issue, this really important issue. Um, but right now you've had some of the biggest forces in the capital kind of lined up against each other, big industries who are supportive of, of giving more flexibility to weight requirements and public safety advocates and local governments who are worried about this legislation, not only costing lives, but also taking away local control um, from from governments to be able to do this.
1: All right. Um, thank you for that. Uh, I'm glad we finally addressed this because it's something that's been sitting out there that we haven't done anything about. We'll watch to see uh, the next steps in uh, this, including what happens over the next year in planning for how to pay for uh, improvements to the infrastructure. Um, Chauncey and, then, and, and Margaret, you know, we, we have been felt really lucky to have your new news organizations, adding to reporting uh, in the state of Georgia. Margaret, you from uh, your home down in Savannah, Chauncey, uh, Capital B, the national publication, but also your Capital B, Atlanta. And and so I'd like to spend a couple minutes talking about stories that you both have brought to our attention uh, that are, are worthy of, of conversation. Chauncey, because we're talking about the legislature, I want to talk briefly about a story you published about a week or so ago about a, about an issue down at the state capitol that hasn't gotten any attention. But again, is one of the reasons we like having capital B with us. Um it's a it, it it it's the story of a woman who has been lobbying for a very long time to eliminate the state's ability to oversee uh, rent control or keeping rents at a reasonable level in local communities around the state. Right now, there's a 39-year-old statute which prevents local municipalities from putting rent controls in place. And I think you talked about a 75-year-old woman who's fighting this. Why is this important?
3: Absolutely. So we're talking about Ms. Margie McCloud. Shout out to her um, uh, from the uh, Cascade neighborhood in Atlanta who has been a a constant thorn in the side of some of the city council members at the uh, Atlanta City Council uh, talking about this issue. Um, Ms. McCloud is a very passionate woman um, who uh, spent uh, some of her formative years in New York City where um, rent regulation has been around since the early 20th century. Um, and uh, she used some of that knowledge as a way to, when she saw a lot of her neighbors, particularly her black neighbors in, in and around um, Cascade and Campbellton Road neighborhoods, uh, to say that sh- we should have some type of rent regulation. She says specifically rent control in the state of Georgia. Now, um, this is something that has been uh, a legislative fight because a lot of the city council members point out the uh, statewide ban on rent regulation has been around since 84. Uh, And have have like compelled her to take her fight up at the uh, General Assembly, which she did. Uh, Senator Donzella James uh, uh, sponsored a bill, I believe it's 125, uh, Senate Bill 125, that uh, basically would would lift the ban on rent regulation. Um, I'm told. By uh, Senator James and some of the other uh, folks in the uh, Democratic caucus, that this this is a measure that a lot of people have gotten behind. It hasn't necessarily been at the forefront for Democrats in terms of priorities this session. When there's a lot more focus on uh, healthcare needs across the state, and um, you know, looking for ways to try to fund uh, upskilling of um, uh, folks who are looking to get uh, green jobs and things of that nature. So um it it kind of fell under the uh the radar a bit in terms of uh it, you know folks that are su- looking to support it. The interesting thing about it also um as uh AJC's done a great job uh talking about how uh private equity firms and um investors are buying up uh, all, a lot of the single family homes in Atlanta and uh, particularly in black neighborhoods. You're seeing this huge demographic shift. I went out with uh, Margie uh One, I was asking to talk to folks who are dealing with rising rent problems, and she said, no problem, just took me out uh, down Campbellton Road. And you see encampments of what appear to be, um, I'm trying to think of the right word here, uh, unhoused people um, out in the street that, you know, recently had lost their apartments or homes due to rising rents, Um, folks in the laundromat, folks at the dollar store. Um, It was rampant, and you could just see that there was a huge evident problem um, that I don't know that the folks at the General Assembly have addressed in the way that that the folks, uh, Black people in Atlanta particularly, might want to see this issue addressed. There have been a number of bills uh, this year that deal with um, housing and or rent or tenants' rights issues in the General Assembly. Uh, Only one or two of them actually made it past uh, crossover day. Um, and it's a it's a concern for a lot of Atlanta residents.
0: And, and Bill, I'm so glad trying to bring this up because this has been a norm at the Capitol for decades. Lawmakers routinely side with landlords. Many of them are landlords themselves. It's been really hard. it, it doesn't follow upon traditional party lines. It's been really hard to change any of these rules, and it takes attention from Capital B and other news outlets to bring more light to this practice. And there it has been some incremental progress this session, or at least incremental developments this session. A bill that would require for the first time that Georgia landlords provide housing that is, I'm quoting here, fit for human habitation, just passed a Senate Judiciary Committee earlier this week unanimously. So that's moving forward. We're not sure if it's going to cross the finish line, but it would be the so, the most significant statewide boost for tenant protection protections in Georgia in decades if this legislation crosses the finish line.
1: Uh, We should point out that some of that is in response to uh, the AJC series Dangerous Dwellings, which pointed out the horrendous conditions under which uh, many uh, renters in lower-income communities are living uh, today. All right, let's do this. When we come back, uh, Margaret Coker, let's talk about a story that uh, you put together, that your team at The Current put together that's getting some reaction from uh, the U.S. Senate in Washington. We'll be right back. Margaret Coker, uh, The Current and ProPublica teamed up uh, to uh, do an investigation of the practices of a Savannah-based company, TitleMax, which I think, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, is the country's largest short-term loan grantor. They, they, They grant loans in exchange for the liens on the title of a borrower's car. And you, in the reporting on this story have pointed out in many ways um, that the practices that Title Max is pursuing are deceptive and trap uh, the uh, borrowers in impossible situations. Yes?
2: Yeah, that is exactly right. We, um, <clears throat> you know, for for over 70,000 Georgians a year are um, working poor, are um fixed people on fixed income people who have damaged credit people who can't get a conventional loan and there's this entire ecosystem of of lending um, institutions that give people short-term loans upwards of $10,000 at a time. And TitleMax and the title lending industry is um, based here in Georgia. Um, TitleMax is the nation's largest title lender. We have another one, Alpharetta-based select management services company, um, who is also either the second or third largest um, company uh, within this industry as well. And this homegrown industry has, you know, sees Georgia as an incredibly lucrative place to do business because here in Georgia they operate um, with a with a huge loophole. Um, even though these um, companies are close to have billion dollars in revenue every year. They don't operate under banking laws in the state of Georgia. They have no regulation from the State Department of Banking and Finance. They are exempt from the state's usury laws, and they operate instead like pawn shops, in fact, under pawn shop statutes. So they're virtually without any oversight in the state of Georgia. And it means that they can charge 187% annual interest rate, which is huge. So we and uh, my team here at The Current and uh, at ProPublica, we've been uncovering really the scope and the scale of the industry here in Georgia, because it is a homegrown industry, because there's such a, um, a strong presence here in the state. And Over the last 18 years, there's been well-meaning people, um, both Republicans and Democrats alike, who have introduced bills um, at the state house to try and bring some reform to this segment of the financial services industry. And over and over again, they get defeated on the statewide level. Um, The impact of our reporting so far over the last year has been, as you mentioned, um, U.S. senators now taking a look. There is a federal consumer regulatory body that has, over the last five years, six years, fined Title Max over $23 million for um, abuse and violations of federal laws. One of the most egregious is one that they just announced last month which is that Titlemax was found in violation of a federal law that protects our military members and their families from predatory lending. And that's what's getting U.S. senators really animated. Um, you know, they are taking up the mantle of, of protecting consumers from predatory loans when um, the State House this year um, has not. Um, there was a bill introduced by Representative Josh Bonner of Fayetteville that never got out of committee, never got a vote. And so Georgians are still vulnerable to these practices.
1: Uh, But meanwhile, a development is that a number of members of the Senate Budget Committee are now urging uh, the uh, federal watchdog to follow up on abusive practices reported uh, by ProPublica and uh, the current and certainly others who have been engaged in this. So I wanted to make sure we talked about that and we'll see how that develops and invite you back to talk about that. Among the many things we like hearing uh, you talk about, Margaret. Uh, Stephen Fowler, let's in the last few minutes talk about another item. Um, This week, the Atlanta City Council uh, voted to give uh, the mayor uh, the uh, power to basically approve all of the contracts and other necessary arrangements that uh, would go into bringing the Democratic National Convention to Atlanta. The AJC has been uh, pounding away at this notion that we are clearly going to get the convention, uh, but Chicago seems to feel they have a
4: pretty good opportunity here too. It's going to be fun to
1: watch this play out.
4: Absolutely. I mean, look. I mean, when you're when you're considered as the finalist, you're not going to just you know sh- you know half do it uh and say yep yeah, we'll just wait to find out i mean the, everybody's waiting on pins and needles i mean chicago's main allure that they are pitching is that the governor who is very wealthy can help bankroll it and it'll be a big extravagant affair uh but atlanta officials are also pulling out all of the stops to say we're the convention city of your dreams um, this is just the latest step in kind of preparing to hit the ground running if and when Atlanta is selected as the convention city. Uh, many of the people that I've talked to that are uh, have been in these DNC national meetings and things like that seem to think that uh, a consolation prize of sorts for not having the primary moved earlier, uh, the convention being in Atlanta would be sort of the next best thing um, since the state won't get to move earlier in the primary calendar like President Biden wanted it to. But there's a lot of logistics going into this, and there's a lot of the financial benefits that the city and the state uh, party are touting saying that look having all this here all the number of hotels and everything um so it's a big it's a big financial deal and so the atlanta city council legislation is just kind of further greasing the wheels for things to move swiftly if and when atlanta's picked
0: bill a lot goes into this uh, it's not a done deal yet, uh, but city officials and state officials, very confident, of course they are. The mayor has told us on the record, it's going to happen. We'll see. <laughs> you know, it's still, it's still, there's one man who gets to make this decision, that's President Joe Biden, and he has not made that decision yet. Um, but either way, you know, there's a lot of logistics that goes into having 50,000 visitors pack the city. Uh, we've been reporting extensively on the, all the hotel rooms, the security, the contracts that need to be executed. This is 16 months away. Uh, at this stage in the 2012, 2016, and 2020 conventions, uh, both host cities for RNC and DNC already knew that they were going to be the host cities. So we're a little bit behind schedule, not not by a long shot, but a little bit behind schedule of where where the DNCs are usually announced. And so city officials told us, that hey they've got to they've got to get all their you know t's crossed and i's dotted just in case um, they want to they want to be able to quickly execute contracts for vendors for MARTA for public transportation with with um, law enforcement agencies so that if and when and potentially when but if um, Atlanta is named the DNC site they can hit the ground running.
1: Uh, By the way, Chauncey, Illinois is fortunate to have a billionaire governor. Governor Pritzker has guaranteed the Democratic National Committee that if there's any shortfall in the budget for the uh, convention there in Chicago, he'll pick up the tab himself. It's also a union town. Um, Democrats used to really be concerned about having a convention in a union town. That doesn't seem to be a major consideration at this point, Um, but you, you, you never know. So, It looks like it's Chicago and Atlanta as opposed to New York.
3: Yeah, I think uh, in addition to unions, one of the other, uh, um, uh, probably the strongest constituency for um, the Democratic Party is African-Americans. And uh, having, uh, you know, hosting a convention in a battleground state in the South where a majority of black folks live, um, it would make more sense, especially, you know, that uh, with the uh, support that... um, President Biden got um from South Carolina um, and uh James Clyburn um during uh when you know his candidacy for president was uh kind of on the ropes um back uh in the 2020 cycle. Um and uh this is a constituency that is not necessarily um pleased with, with the Democratic Party. Um and uh this is might be a, you know, at least one small step towards helping to shore up that base um ahead of 2024. Uh, there's a lot of folks who have Speculated that um, um, African Americans um, might not be compelled to vote as as in the, the the numbers that they have historically. So it's something that they should definitely take a look at.
1: All right, the folks in the other cities like to point out the last time the Democrats met in Atlanta was 1988 when the nominee was Michael Dukakis, a loser. In 1992, New York held the convention and it was Bill Clinton, a winner. And in '96, Chicago, and once again. Uh, they propelled Bill Clinton toward his second term in office. So it's going to be interesting to watch how this plays out. There's a lot of money on the line for uh, the city. And all of these journalists on this panel would love to cover a convention in their home state. That's it for us today. We're out of time. Thank you, Margaret Coker, Stephen Fowler, Chauncey Elkhorn, and Greg Bluestein, for a terrific conversation. Back tomorrow with Eve Ensler, who now is known as V. Take care, everybody. See you tomorrow.